Radio. This is Catholics Read on Cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Chiara. And I'm Victoria. And I'm Luke. Stuck at home. And the reason why <laughs> Luke is not introducing this episode is because I'm in studio on mic one and Luke is at home. With the chicken pox. With the chicken pox. Yes. Because you obviously missed that in primary school. I did. I did. But now and I have it. So he's quarantining himself to prevent other adults like him who might get far sicker and end up in hospital with chicken pox. Because it's, it's very, very dangerous when true. you're an adult. Yeah. It, anyway. This, this episode is not about <laughs> Although the Although Luke looks box. perfectly fine from here, so fine. We, Luke is, like, with us in spirit somehow via Skype. In internet. I think is the best way to In data. Internet. In data. Via the, the interwebs. Via the interwebs. Indeed. So, today we are doing Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, a poem from the year... What year is it from, Victoria? Uh, it was published in 22, but it was written... 1922, in by the way. 21. Yeah, 1921. Cool. And to start us off, Vivi, you had some. You've got a. You've got a poem with lots of notes scribbled all over it. So I suppose <laughs> you're the person to Classic start us off. Student. I can hardly see the actual poem. I've got so many notes. But I was just trying to get my head around Elliot. And um, if yeah. you uh, are keeping up with the the recordings, and you thought, oh, great, they're doing Wasteland, so I'm going to read it so that I'm fully prepared for the next episode. Ha, by the way, ha, you're doing that. Ha, That's ha. amazing. Uh, and well done, got, by the way. Yeah, well Thank done. you for Here's taking it seriously. And if you got confused, don't worry. Um, Elliot I got is, confused. Elliot's difficult, okay? Let's let's start the whole thing with that. He's difficult. And um, so, okay, The Wasteland, uh, published in 1922. It is in five parts. Um, oh, I only got to part two. <laughs> it's Confession. in five parts. Uh, number one, the burial of the dead. Number two, uh, a game of chess. Number three, uh, the fire salmon. Number four, death by water. Number five, what the thunder said. Car. That's what the thunder said. It said car. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Luke. Spoiler alert, Thank you. That's what it says. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria's obviously missed it as well. No, it says da. Ah, terrible. Anyway, I've only said one thing in this episode and it was wrong. Okay, continue. You're subverting the Victoria is wrong trope of this uh, episode. It's because you're at home quarantined. It's because I was introduced third. That's you. what it was. I was introduced third and so now, now I take the Victoria throne. Poor <laughs> <Call> you. <laughs> um... Yeah, so it's in five parts, and uh, everything comes under the title The Wasteland. Most copies have um, an epigram that comes before it um, in Latin and or Greek, and uh, from the uh, Satyricon of Petronius, and this is how it, and this is the translation of this little line that um, precedes The Wasteland, which I think sums up the whole thing, to be honest. I saw with my my own eyes the Sibyl of Cumae hanging in a jar, and when the boys said to her, Sybil, what do you want? She replied, I want to die. So it's basically about someone... Wow, that sets the tone for the entire poem. Someone looking out regarding the future or the, uh, or the present or both, and and that is the conclusion they come to. And that is an excellent segue into discussing, I suppose, the fact that this poem is a modernist text, sometimes heralded the, most, the, the greatest text to come out of the modernist period the 20th century, uh, besides Ulysses by, of course, James Joyce. 
Um, so it's, you know, modernism is a reaction to the First World War. Humans losing faith in humanity and humanity. progress and all things good and great, yes. essentially. Religion being one of them um, a lot of the time. And so this poem is just, it's it's a lot. It's got... If you think The Walking Dead is depressing, read this poem. <laughs> like, no, literally, if you, if, you, if you think of all the depressing post-apocalyptic texts you could think of, read this poem because it will outdo every single one of them in terms of bleak and depressing. Yeah, and... It, it's, and scary. It's, it is scary. Um, it goes through themes of, you know, disillusionment and despair, uh, judgment, um, death. Death, random bits of German. Self-denial <laughs> and everything in between with imagery such as deserts and wastelands and uh, necropolis cities. Um, people becoming quite ill after taking various forms of medication um, and just everything in between. It's, it is, it's a wasteland um, and it's, it's quite a lot to, to take in, especially if you're having a really great day. You're like, I'm going to sit down and read T.S. Eliot now, which is yeah, what no. I did. And, um, <laughs> My first reaction to this poem, having read basically to just before the end of the second part, was I have no idea what is happening, essentially. Like, I could not follow, and I mean, I struggle with poetry, full stop, even a very, very structured and, like, a structured, like, I, I struggle with Homer to understand what's going on. That's not really, that's a really epic, strongly structured poetical form. So this, I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand. Abort mission. Okay. Can we do something else? My ag- yes. <laughs> But it was this morning, so by then it was too late. Um, <laughs> Luke, your first impressions? Um, oh, I don't, I don't know what to say. It's a lot harder to think of stuff when you're not actually in the in the in studio. The I don't know. It's yeah. a bit weirder. I feel like I'm watching the show, and I'm like, oh wait, no, I'm in it. Um, <laughs> I just thought it yeah. was um, in in aesthetics class a couple of weeks ago. We watched this, um, this, the start of this documentary um, by a fellow whose name I've completely forgotten. I think he's an art historian, and it's terrible that I've forgotten it because he's a very famous English fellow. And he talks about how he um, was captured by... It's called The Power of Art, I think, the series, and how he was captured by The Power of Art. He was very into pop art in the late 60s, and he um, went to the British Nas- National Art Gallery, I think, whatever that is, the Tate, sorry, the Tate, um, and ah. he goes there, and they had an exhibition by Rothko on the day that he died. Um, he committed suicide, sadly. Um, so he went there with no intention to go and see Rothko. He wanted to go and see, um, I think, Francis Bacon or something like that. And um, he ends up accidentally in this room full of the, uh, the, the Seagram murals, the famous Rothko paintings, and he said he was taken, he just came in there accidentally and he was taken on this journey and he didn't know where he was going and he didn't think he'd like where he was going, but he couldn't help it. He was just taken on that journey. And that was pretty much the wasteland for me. Reading it was just like, I'm being taken on a journey. I don't know where I'm going and I don't think I like it, but it's taking me there. Um, and it's just, it was just bizarre, but you can't get away from it. Like, I felt so enthralled by it, and I had no idea what was going on, but it was amazing. I don't know. I guess that's the, pow- the power of poetry there um, that I haven't seen because we haven't read a long poem yet. 
Um, that is just my first impression. I don't know what what you two think of that, but yeah, we went we. We read Gwen. That was, that was we did. Fun. We did read Gwen, but Gwen was like a narrative. <clears throat> this is kind of like an aesthetic experience. Like it's just a wall of something. Yeah, which I suppose tells you a lot about modernism as a movement itself. Like most art movement, most sort of um, movements start in the art world, and then they filter into literature, and then they fil- you know then they filter into literature and philosophy, and then trickle down into the rest into the rest of us. So. Um, like modernism arguably started much earlier, like right back in, you know, had its, had its origins in sort of the pre, you know, pre-war era. Yeah. Late late 1800s, turn of the century. And you don't, but it doesn't really sort of come to its full bloom, so to speak, until after the, after the first world war and T.S. Eliot being a very classic piece of modernist poetry. But it does tell you a lot about sort of the deconstruction because the deconstruction, of the elements of poems because poetry had a very very distinct purpose in sort of the medieval and the in you know in earlier periods which was to tell a story it was a way of conveying history it was a way of conveying um it was a method of um conveying your history your mythology your religious beliefs your social beliefs it it had a very distinct purpose and so the the forms of poetry reflected that distinct purpose whereas and it was in a collective sense there yes. was no notion of the i that was much later on think wordsworth and stuff like that it was about your nation your people yeah your collective memory this is who we are this is what we believe this is where we have been these are our stories that was the purpose of poetry and you know narrative whereas here you see a really just i think you see something really different which is basically taking it's basically the same thing that modern art did was it took the art out of its context and stuck it on a gallery wall, if that makes mm, sense. Mm, so, no, that does make sense. And yeah. art was made purely for the gallery wall or for a wall, not to be part of an object, if that makes sense, or not to be the decorative, the, the aesthetic element of a functional object or of a functional room. It was just there in itself. So in, in a way, this poem's kind of like that. It's poetry taken out of that context of the you know context of um conveying a narrative a history a belief a people and being just poetry for poetry's sake if that makes sense just in the same way that art was taken out of the culture out of yeah, well, not out of the culture. The, the, per se, sorry, but the society, it, the the living, breathing society, which it exists. Yeah, in. The, the ordinary, the ordinary, everyday living in society. So you know, embedded into people's walls, it now sat on people's walls, and you could move it, um, if that makes sense. So I don't know. Am I reading that right, Victoria? Like, you're I've, probably a little bit more familiar I've with. I've never really, I've never heard it from that point of view. It doesn't sound wrong uh, per se, but I think that's where Eliot's poetry is so interesting because while yes, it is so detached from poetry from before there's also i, I mean there's still a lot of references to what yeah absolutely as well. oh it's this it's mishmash it's all over the place. i know i was in there like <laughs> i was reading there are random german bits in there i'm like oh okay then i don't read german so i'm just gonna skip that bit um it's it's um it's to be noted by the way uh listeners that you're not meant to know what the translation is um he could be bat. saying fried lettuce for all we know uh, he usually isn't, but <laughs> yeah, obviously it's a it's a method of defamiliarization. As far as I'm aware, you're not you're not meant to know off the bat. Oh, okay, so it's meant to be confusing and bewildering. It's, okay, it's meant to be a bit confusing. But um, I did a bit of research, and apparently the the 
foreign language that keeps right. interjecting. So the the German, the Latin, the Greek, the Sanskrit, the French, the Italian. Oh, this is Sanskrit. Um, yeah, it's Sanskrit's at the end. Oh, yeah. cool. Um, is it's meant to? It's got a twofold sort of. Uh, function, I suppose. Number one, to show the cosmopolitan nature of Europe in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, because, quite frankly, if you're in a, in a square somewhere, this is the kind of stuff you'll hear, interjected bits of language from everywhere. Um, and also, the problem of, I suppose, the Tower of Babel, the fact that ah. we can't comprehend perfectly anymore. There is it, That's gone. Yes. And something, if you're interested in this whole concept and this, this problem that some writers feel the, the Tower of Babel problemists, I think it's sometimes called. You should read the first book of the New York trilogy called The City of Glass, where the, one of the main characters, Peter Stillman, is obsessed with this problem and about how humans can't perfectly comprehend each other anymore. And, and it was something that played on the minds of modernists and later on with, um, well, I, su I suppose before with uh, De Saussure and later on with uh, Jacques Derrida. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a continuing problem that people have you know, issues with. Yes. Um, yes, and you know the philosophy of language basically is a classic school. You know, it's a it's a classic element of postmodernism as well. The fact that yeah. um, you know, and the relativization of sort of epistemology and all that sort of stuff. That's all come. That all starts here. But in postmodern, you can see the seeds of postmod of postmodernism in here. And again, it all goes down to that problem, that infernal problem of language, because there are some words you cannot translate. From one language into another, because for whatever reason, that, that language it is so is so unique to that culture that it just they don't always translate. Mm. And yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting reason. For Would you think though, that. Victoria or, or Chiara, but more Victoria here, that there's some kind of with T. S. Eliot. Um, I don't, I don't want to say commentary, um, but almost like he, it's reflecting something that is the state of the world that he's in at that point in time. Um, because we were saying before, Kiara, how you were saying that art is something that's embedded within. You kind of have these nice, neat, clean lines between, I guess you could say, nations. Whereas you have at least it leading up to the First World War. Post-First World War, not so much, because I guess there was a much more suspicion between nations. Um, but you had this kind of mishmash of the cultures, perhaps, I don't know, to a detrimental effect, to a good effect. I, I don't really know where I'm going with this comment, but I'm more thinking, you know, what was the point of him trying to say what, what exactly is he trying to say and why is he saying it in the way that he's saying it? Um, look, I think like one of the like the cause of the First World War was the very intricate web of alliances between the various nation states in Europe at the time, in Europe and Russia and also Turkey at the time. So basically, because some Serbs assassinated the Archduke of Austria, this person declared war, and because that person declared war, this other person had to come to that other country's defence, and then this other country had to get into it too because they were allied with them. And, you know, there was this... It was a... It, like, the breakdown of the nation-state, really, and the empire especially, really started happening in the in the post-World War... in the post-World War One world. So the Ottoman Empire fell. Russia was gone. Russia, as we understood, as we understood it, was gone. The British Empire was slowly beginning to break up. The French Empire was also slowly beginning to break up. Like, this was... 
um, this mission, you know, there were new, there were lots of new nation states being formed and emerging. But do you think, though, uh, not so much on a macro scale as in the nation states, oh, but yeah. in terms of the experience of the individual person, like someone like T.S. Eliot, that the world around him has become disjointed and fragmented and almost, I mean, in the in the wasteland, you see that it sort of, you kind of feel like you're being taken on this weird journey through time and space where you'll just appear in someone's room and something will happen. And then you'll appear out in someone's memory and something will happen. And then you'll appear somewhere, some, somewhere else. And ex- exactly what Victoria said, there's this sense of confusion um, I get. I guess again, what I'm trying to say, or what I'm trying to ask, is why exactly is is it a reflection of the world around him? Is it something? Is he critiquing something? What What's the point in T. S. Eliot saying all this? I think. I think there. I think he is reacting to the aftermath. Or am I reading politics on? Uh, or am I re- reading something political onto something that's not meant to be political? I mean, we, we joke about that we talk about Marxism all the time on this show, and here it comes again. Yes. But that does tend to be quite a Marxist thing, to read politics onto art um, when it may not necessarily be there. So, um, um, but let's not go to Marxism. <laughs> let's just stay, No, yeah. no, I think he's just... I think he is reacting, and what do artists do when they feel a deep sense of loss or a discord discord they create they they turn to their creative um faculties to try and express it and Mm. so and to try and you know put words to it put images to it put paint to canvas you know whatever their medium is um artists are far are very very much in tune to the currents and the mood of society and what that's saying to them and expressing it in ways that people who might not be paying as much attention or are as sensitive to it for whatever reason can go oh hello you know we have a problem or oh isn't that wonderful because mm. um, it goes both ways like there are good movements and there are bad movements and um, I think T.S. Eliot really is reacting to just the sheer like the destruction of progress essentially like the first world war killed progress like the idea of it killed the humanist project. That's what that's what the First World War did. That human beings will continue to be better, be more virtuous, be more peaceful, be more um, civilized, and then the First World War happened, mm. and that was and they had all the technology, all the you know the great you know the great heights of political power. They had the modern nation state. They had this you know. They had alliance. They had alliances. They had all of these th- mechanisms that were supposed to prevent barbarity from ever happening again. And the First World War happened. And what's left after the First World War? A wasteland. Germany mm. was flattened. Um, good portions of Italy were destroyed. The Ottoman Empire was gone. Russia was gone. Britain and France were left utterly weak, like victors, yes, but so weak. And just, like, you know, and bewildered. Like, they had no idea what was going on. And it really set the tone. I mean, this period, like, really is setting the tone for... um, Setting the tone for the Second World War in many ways. Um, But also just... I mean, all T.S. Eliot sees in the future is a wasteland. And he, he 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 wasn't... He wasn't 
incorrect in that prediction in many ways because the Second World War came around and that saw destruction on a scale no one had seen before and they saw the First World War. Victoria... Which puts it in context. So, Victoria, do you know um, what T.S. Eliot's... Because, I mean, I this is the only poem I've, I've read by him and he's written a lot of poems. But do you, are you able to give us some insight into T.S. Eliot himself? Um, <laughs> I, um, I think I think sometimes it's a very humble thing to say that you don't know. And this is one of those that most... Ah, oh, no. In life, the poetry person have, has let us down. I, look, I... Go back I to microphone number three. I tried very hard to understand the... I tried very hard to understand the poem. I didn't quite get round to T.S. Eliot. Okay. Um, but I... I, I am doing had, a serotipitous Google. Uh, oh, yes. no. Check Wikipedia. <laughs> Um, I get the impression T.S. Eliot's a bit more complicated than Wikipedia articles. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do okay. All right, it's a starting point. It, it, yes, it is. It is a starting point. I have um, his signature on Wikipedia, but I have had uh, experience with some of his other poems. So uh, I've read and uh, studied and analysed Proofrock. Uh, obviously, we've got the Wasteland here. Um, uh, I was recently asked to read The Four Quartets, um, which is heralded as one of the most important texts, I think, ever written, apparently. Um, look, I'm not not quite sure what's going on with that with that text at the moment, but I, I plan to, you know, unravel it a bit more. But T.S. Eliot... Well, this is, is, this is considered to be the most state. important poem of the 20th century, so... One of the most important poems one, of the 20th one of, century. One yeah. Um, but... They also, um, there's Wasteland, The Hollow Men, Ash Wednesday, and Four Quarters, Quartets. Yeah, which is what Victoria Four Quartets. Yeah. Yes, those are his other most well-known poems. And he won a Nobel Prize in Literature in 1948. Mm. He's often uh, grouped together, if this helps anyone at all, with people like Plath and Virginia Woolf um, yes. and other modernists. Um, so if you need to get a feel of sort of the environment from which his, his work is coming from, maybe that will help. But as Kiara was saying before... He, he was a poet definitely reacting to his time. Um, uh, Percy Shelley once wrote this essay called A Defense of Poetry, which talks about the role the poet plays in society. And he has this brilliant line, which I'm going to uh, just butcher, but something along the lines of the poet being the prophet of his time so and being a sensible man, mm. not sensible in terms of um, how... Good-mannered, well-mannered. now. Not yeah, not in that way. Sensible as in in touch with the senses, very very in tune with what's going on, almost like those um, uh, earthquake machines. Yes, which I think I'm borrowing that term from from Fitzgerald. I think that's how he described Gatsby as someone who was very sensitive to other people's uh, fluctuations and uh, emotion and thought. But that's what a poet is meant to be like. Um, in tune with the times and reflecting the times, critiquing the times, and and sometimes celebrating the good things about and, the times. And sometimes celebrating. There was there were definitely hopeful writers that came out of this period. All right. Um, so I'm just doing a quick Google. Uh, T.S. Eliot was actually born in the United States in Missouri and then moved over to England when he was an adult and was eventually naturalised as a British citizen. Um, blah, 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 he... You can feel that transatlantic tension, I think. Yeah! Like, is he American? Is he British? I don't know. Yeah. He's got a bit of both. 
Mm. Um, he studied philosophy at Harvard. Um, Harvard, and he worked as a philosophy assistant, as research assistant. You can tell he's got. He moved to Pat. Then he studied at the Sorbonne. He just studied philosophy at the Sorbonne in Paris. Um, and then eventually was awarded a scholarship to Merton College in Oxford in 1914. And he also visited Germany. Um, and then the, Germany over the summer that World War I broke out. So he returned to Oxford. Um, so, yeah, he's got a very... So, obviously, that's where he picked up his German and he picked up his French and he picked up Yeah, his, he would, he would mostly know, pick that up. And I think this is something that doing philosophy and theology essays... Has, has taught oh. me is that we, and this is perhaps something that T.S. Eliot's hinting at, and it might be for us as an audience in the 21st century, is that we don't necessarily know what's going on with the parts that are in German and, and Latin and what have you. But an educated person 200 years ago certainly would have. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm reading at the moment, I was reading at the moment something by a blessed John Henry Newman, and he just starts quoting stuff in Latin and gives no translation for it whatsoever because, like, well, you're expected he have to know to. it. Um, and so there's a bit of that going on there as well, that it's interesting that, as I guess, at least in the English speaking world, we've become a lot less. Um, privy to, I mean, you could, if you handed this to a regular person on the street, and this is not their fault, I'm not trying to create, like, a kind of educated class system here, but not only would they have no idea what's going on, they probably wouldn't even be able to have a hint at there's like, oh, that's a reference to something there. Like, it would just seem like a piece of garbage text that a computer spat out, rather than something that's referencing literature, that's referencing, I guess, um cultural themes uh, that have run through society for such a long time. Um, I remember reading in a commentary about this that T.S. Eliot both references high culture and low culture, which is very interesting as well throughout. And yet when we read this now, perhaps... We just have no idea it's just, of either. It's, it, just, it might as well have all been written in Japanese. Like, it's... What on earth is this? Um, I guess that's perhaps a turning point that we could say... To, to kind of close off the show would be for um, both you, uh, Chiara and Victoria, is um, we've talked about, I think, in the past uh, the power of, of the book being able to do things that, say, a movie uh, or a play or something like that can't. I think we can talk about that, however, with poetry. I mean, if you read through this poem, uh, especially towards the end... Um, it starts getting really disjointed, uh, not just in terms of the words, but in the structure of the poem as well, that it's really unsettling. And I'm thinking about, for example, um, the section where it says, uh, let me just have a look, sorry. I can connect nothing with nothing, the bro broken fingernails of dirty hands, my people humble people who expect nothing, la la. To Carthage, then I came. This section here, I'm reading it, but if you actually look at this section here, it's sort of the alignment of the text goes out. There's yeah, bits that are in that is no that. capitalization, no punctuation whatsoever. Um, it's like one line stanzas. Uh, I mean, two word stanzas that are that are indented about two inches off the left hand margin. Like, it's all over the place, and 
what this does that, say, a book can't, because it would be really weird for a book to do that, is that it really unsettles you. Um, if a book did it, you'd be a bit confused. Although, that said, I haven't read Ulysses, but interestingly that was published in the same year, I believe, or was published the year before this was. Um, that there's perhaps some of that in Ulysses, but I'm not entirely sure. But that a poem, I guess, has a little bit more capacity to do it in a shorter length. Um, Victoria, Chiara, do you have anything to say about that? Like, what is the power of the poem to, al- to be able to do things that other forms of literature can't quite get away with? Well, I suppose poetry has this power to play with language in a concentrate manner, um, which sometimes books can't do. I'm not saying they, they can't do it at all. Just a lot of the time books are a lot more lengthy and have a lot more time to explore things. But poems are very concentrated. So every, every word matters. Counts, yeah. Where the words are put, this alignment thing that Luke brought up is very important because this um, was something that really gained a lot of popularity in this time because it was yet another way of showing the disjointed nature of language and humanity and meaning and hope and everything like that. Um, But it's, look, it's Eliot at his best. He's playing with dramatic monologue, dramatic dialogue. um, Breaking into song at some point. uh, Copious allusions to uh, Augustine and Eastern religions and... um, uh, almost slang that he would have heard around London and, and things like that. And there's pastiche and intertextuality and it's just, it's just a lot. And it's quite easy to cast it off as a schmuzzle. Him yes. Potentially um, off his mind, just writing down things, but it's a lot more. It's him seeing, it's him trying to co- like uh, put onto paper what he's seeing in society. And that's difficult. Um, especially in this post-World War, post-World, post-World War I uh, environment that he's living in. And that's why he has the different... Luke was saying before that for a while you don't know where you are. You, are you in someone's living room? Are you here? Are you there? Um, each section has... Uh, the term used by academics is vignette. So um, V-I-G-N-E-T-T-E-S. So that's um, a brief, evocative description or episode. And they're usually uh, from different points of view, so they're multivocal if you look at all of them in one section. And that's just to further throw you off, see what this person thinks, and this person thinks a bit differently, and um, it's both expansive and just mind-numbingly concentrated at the same time. It's, it's both at once, and that's, I suppose, the beauty of this poem. Um, Pretty intense. For me, I think, like, I mean, I... I really struggle with poetry, as most people know, and particularly poetry that doesn't have a strong, clear, lyrical narrative and form. Or metre. Which, yes. by the way, thanks to Ezra Pound, this now has almost no rhyming metre. Yes. <laughs> thanks, bro. Oh, again, why I really struggle with this poem, because I'm like, I've, I was try- and even then, you try and read this out loud, it still doesn't make sense. Like having that's said, having the, said that though, there are some things I have to point this out. Like we he can't does end the episode without saying this, but really quickly, there are. And I was telling a friend this this morning because she was asking me why is Elliot so hard, and I said, it's because you'll read something and you'll think I like this, but I have no idea what it means. But there's something in that which draws me to want to understand it. It's almost like, and I know I use this analogy a lot, but it's sort of like falling in love with someone, being like, there's something about you 
I don't know what There's it is. I can't about, put my finger on it. But it's. But I want to be able to find out what that is, potentially to articulate it some more. And so, for instance, you might be reading something and thinking, oh, what's going on here? It's talking about desert, desolation, blah, blah, blah. And then you'll come across something like this. And I've like, highlighted and stuff because I loved it so much. This just comes out of nowhere. About, I think a woman's getting ready for her husband to come home at some point. In, uh, oh, this bit's yeah. terrifying. Yeah, but, no, <laughs> but at one point there's this section and it's it's just... It's apart from everything else, and it says, My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? I never know what you are thinking. Think. And it doesn't matter that you haven't understood what's happened like two you, pages before. That, that gets at you somehow, because... and. Like you're, you're hearing talk, one half of a conversation. Yes, but it's also that's the, there's something very human about that section, and I read it many times because I loved it so much. But if this was a, perhaps if this was a picture, um, you could talk about the punctum in a picture. So the punctum is something that individually cuts you to the core, as opposed to the studium, or the studium, which is like the contextual, all the societal things that are going on in the text, and Eliot's work has these punctums sprinkled all out his work and it's yeah it's unsettling but it's it's quite it really makes you think why does why does that uh stand out to me and then you know you're not only uh in, engaging with the text but engaging with yourself if a poem can do that it's quite successful and it's and it does it in a and poetry can get away with a lot more um blunt and straightforward and cutting to the heart of the matter in a way that a book can't, I think, because poetry is something far... Poetry is not something you're supposed to just engage with on an intellectual level. A book always invites an intellectual engagement, and if it's really good, an emotional engagement. But on one level, a book, you know, at the... at, at at, at worst, a book only demands an intellectual engagement, whereas a poem demands an emotional engagement, then an intellectual engagement. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm getting that. I'm getting if if I'm like entirely missing the point here. It's not that either can't do both, but the primary ask of a poem is, you know, read the, you know, use your heart, not your head, just yet. If that makes sense, and so it can cut through a lot of um, barriers we might put in put in the way to understanding or getting the you know getting the idea that the author wants to wants you to get, and so in that way, poems is that's why poems are so powerful and why it is so feared in many ways um, because it does have that ability because it just asks to you know use your heart first then your head. Whereas books always implicitly or explicitly demand that you use your head first, then your heart. I don't know. Am I am I wrong on that, Luke? Or is no, that... I think I I think that's that's fa a fairly accurate assessment. Um, and I think when when you think about books that really um, that really engage you in a way that's kind of for, for want of a better term emotional. Um, Sensual? Would that be a better word? I'm not sure. Um, it's it's only really insofar as they're almost like poetry. 
Like when you read mm, the way yes. that someone writes and it's a really beautiful way of writing, it's poetic in, in a way. And so I think that it's that's... poetic prose as opposed that's to why, just prose. Because it's, mm. it's because the book is kind of almost transcending its bookness and becoming poetry in a way. Um, so... Yeah, which in today's postmodern world, it's becoming a lot harder to try and tell the difference <laughs> because I guess there are many. Well, look at I mentioned Ulysses before. Um, Ulysses, as I mentioned, came out either the same year or the year before. I think the year before because I think Elliot read Ulysses while writing this, um, and that's also you could argue almost like a big poem in that it's just so all over the place. There's a huge opening up here that we could talk about with um, the masculine and the feminine gaze here, but I won't do it to spare poor Victoria. Um, yes. And probably Kiara as well and myself <laughs> and our listeners. Um, so I think we might wrap it up there. What do you think? I think I think that's a good note to leave on. Do we know what we are doing for next time? I don't know. It's sick of exams. Yay. What was that, Victoria? <laughs> In the thick of exams. In the thick of yeah. exams, exactly. Um, maybe something a little bit less intense than the wasteland, but not, yeah, but not well, longer. Uh, <laughs> no, maybe like a pithy essay or something. Can we? Can we, do, <laughs> can we do a fairy tale? Oh, we just did Cinderella. Yeah. Oh, not do. Okay, so not do the brothers Grimm and like <laughs> having bits of feet cut off. Okay. Um, Let's do something. Um, I, I, Let's I, just I do the know. very hungry caterpillar, okay, and get it over with. The very hungry um. caterpillar. <laughs> have you seen the Have you seen the Tumblr thread where these kids had to rewrite a children's book about the about World War Two, and so someone turned the very hungry caterpillar into the very hungry Hitler? Oh, that's terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> but it was perfect. It was so perfect. It exactly explained how World War Two happened with the very hungry Hitler. Oh, there no. you go. Yeah, totally ruined your childhood. <laughs> but no, um, so childhood. Maybe it could be a mystery text, mystery fun text. Yeah, mystery, yeah, mystery text. text. What's a short okay. mystery text? We want to do a well, part uh, around mystery. Sorry? Oh, wait, no, we're not talking literally a mystery text. We're talking about... No, like... Okay. No. Myst- yeah, mysterious right. text. I'm, random I'm text. To, um, a random business. text. Yeah. All oh, right. Spin a oh. wheel. I'm sure there's some kind of random literature generator out there on the internet. I'd be very afraid of it if there was one, to be honest. Um, yeah, who knows what you'd get. Oh, All right, so next time on Catholics Read... Question mark. Yeah, we don't Question know just mark. yet. Yeah. Um, we you should yes, prepare to be surprised. So thanks for listening again, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. 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 That was an episode of Catholics Read from Cradio.org.au.